Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave. We are reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this episode, we'll be talking about how charitable organisations can plan effectively in times of crisis. And to counter the rather gloomy prospect of 2023, we'll be talking about Christmas charity singles. That will be in the Good News Bulletin later on. I must say, though, Russ, it's very nice to have you back with us after what I think has been a four-week hiatus from the podcast. Have you been up to anything interesting in your absence? Well, what I was up to today, as you know, Lucinda, was hoping I could get from the south coast of London in the snow. And it turned out, of course, none of us could do that, which is why we're now recording this remotely from our respective bedrooms. It's like COVID days all over again, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it is. Anyway, the listener's loss in that four weeks absence was the news desk's gain. Our colleague sent me off to sort of cover news stories left, right and centre. Tons of stuff going on in the charity sector at the moment, especially impacted by um, the energy bills, demand going up and up with the economic crisis. But one rather older story, Lucinda, do you want to know the latest on Kids Company? I absolutely do. I mean, that story's been going on for years now, hasn't uh, it? Um, and it seems to have lost the attention of the mainstream media, at least. Yeah, there's a reason that we refer to Kids Company as the forever story sometimes in editorial meetings. Um, I'll give a very brief history of it. Um, it was, as lots of people know, it was one of the country's highest profile charities, um, led by the very charismatic Camilla batman Gellidge, she of the multicoloured caftans and headdresses. Um, mm-hmm. And then it collapsed suddenly overnight in 2015, amid a raft of stories in the media, leaks from government about how it had been run. And batman Gellidge and her trustees always say that the charity has been a victim of an attempt to bring the charity down. A smear campaign is the phrase that's been used to me. The critics of the charity say, no, it's nothing as sort of conspiratorial as that. The finances were never very well run. And ultimately, the charity sort of existed hand to mouth and eventually collapsed, as it was always going to if it was run like that. It took seven years for lots of reasons, all the way up from 2015 to 2022, to get a charity commission report into what the commission thinks went wrong. And they concluded that there was a high risk business model being operated, low or negative financial reserves, as I say, hand to mouth living And your reserves are there to make sure that either as a charity you can survive when things go wrong, as they did, or if you have to close down, then you do it in an orderly fashion. And as I say, the charity wasn't able to do that. One day it was there, and the next minute it was gone. Charity Commission very critical of that. But the charity's bosses never agreed. They launched legal action to have a judicial review of that commission report. Very unusual Mm -hmm. step, first reported exclusively in third sector. And the first phase of that legal action started on Thursday with a judge hearing the arguments from the representatives of the Charity Commission and the representatives of the charity, who are arguing about whether or not there will be permission for this judicial review to go ahead. And of course, the law being what it is, I I tuned in, I tried to follow as much as I could, I wrote a quick story, I thought there was lots of interesting stuff going on, but at the very end, the judge said, look, I'm not going to make a decision today. Um, In fact, he didn't promise that he would make a decision even before Christmas. So we Mm. might yet still be weeks and weeks away from the next instalment of exactly what's going to happen with this charity. It is, as we say, the forever story. But my suspicion is there's still a bit more road to travel on this one, isn't there? Well, we're very lucky that you are still pursuing it and haven't got bored yet from the the onset of the story in 2015. Um, And it is all very interesting. But what do you think that the sector can learn from this whole fiasco? Well, the main thing is just how rare it is for these processes to take place at all. Um, You can challenge the Charity Commission. There's a charity 
appeals tribunal court and things like that. I'm sure a lot of things goes on behind the scenes. But to have this played out in public judicial review applications, very, very rare. And if Kids Company is successful, that's a huge if, we will then have a judicial review that potentially could start to unpick the way that the Charity Commission worked and the way that it undertook its investigation. Now, I do a lot of things that are very foolish, Lucinda, but even I'm not stupid enough to try and second guess what legal decisions have occurred to be made. So I honestly don't know. But the charity sector as a whole will be watching with interest because if the Charity Commission's decisions do then get scrutinized more, the processes behind them get unteased to try and work out exactly what was going on, that's going to set a bit of a precedent for any charity that might think, well, we've been criticized by the regulator here, but we think there might be a way to sort of kick back a little bit. So a lot depends on the next stage of this, but the sector as a whole, if they're wise, will keep an eye on it. And we'll be carrying all the latest updates on the third sector news pages, of course. Excellent. Thanks, Russ. Now it's time to welcome our guests for this week. First up is Emily Wilson, the founder and CEO of iRise International, a charity which seeks to shape national policy and global advocacy around period poverty. She convened the UK government's period poverty task force and spent three years living in Uganda to help establish iRise's sister organisation in East Africa. Welcome, Emily. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you so much for being here. And also joining us today is Martin Drake, a consultant who specialises in strategy, leadership, growth and change, with a special focus on improving performance in the charity and not-for-profit sector. Hi there, Martin. Hello. Nice to meet you. And you. And although the government has been talking about austerity for well over a decade, it does feel like we might be entering a new level going into 2023. But the show must go on and charities must work to deliver services as efficiently as possible as demand increases while funding is cut. And that is going to require both careful planning and adaptability. Using scenarios in strategic thinking is one way of going about it. So, Martin, could you start us off by explaining how charities can plan and strategize with the use of scenarios? The way that we use scenarios these days is not to try and predict the future. I think that's sort of almost impossible. You, you, you might have sort of some central planning assumptions, but generally with the sort of envelope of uncertainty that we're looking at over you know, the next few years, we tend to use scenarios to help us sort of navigate what is the potential space within which the future can unfold. So we, we look at what, what I call plausible extremes. So if I give an example going back to, I guess, Brexit, I was working with a lot of businesses and a lot of uh, nonprofits in the run to Brexit. And there were loads of different ways that Brexit could play out. But actually, when you look at it, it kind of all boils down to variations on a theme. So my clients worked with me based on what is the plausible extreme and the, the, the most sort of extreme impact would be if it all looked like it was plain sailing right up until the 11th hour and then suddenly we had a cliff edge hard Brexit where we cut ties completely. And, and every sort of more moderate version of that scenario, you still end up just looking at the same big decisions, but maybe just with less pressure on them. And so when we use those same kind of principles to look at what are the plausible extremes with nonprofits. For example, quite recently working with a social care provider, we looked at scenarios and we picked three sort of big plausible extreme scenarios. One was where actually social care really tightens. Um, so increased funding restrictions for anyone who's not high complexity. 
So, you know, the, the funding just goes to the really complex and everybody else in the middle kind of slowly gets less and less funding, coupled with sort of increasing staff shortages, increasing costs from inflation and wage demand. So that was one scenario. So what's the plausible extreme of that? Another scenario was uh, much more positive. You know, the government comes in because it recognises it knows to needs to invest in social care, build more resilient, efficient systems, etc. So that's a different scenario. And a third scenario might be, um, I think in, in this case, we chose public opinion really shifts to recognise the state, you know, as waves of media stories and that sort of thing. Um, and then we did this with trustees and it's, it's really powerful to do with trustees because it's such a sort of visceral experience to then say, okay, you four or five, you take the scenario and really immerse yourselves in it and look at what you would do. Imagine that scenario has happened and we're now two years in what would you do as an organization? What are the big decisions that you have to make? But also, more importantly, what do you wish you'd done two years ago in preparation for this? And what you find is when all three groups sort of report back, there's a whole bunch of commonalities. So even though the future is really uncertain and unpredictable, there are certain things that are probably really good ideas anyway. And those are the things that tend to then inform what should be the fundamental building blocks of your strategy going forwards, because broadly in any scenario, within these sort of parameters that we've laid out, they would be good things to do. And they're variably, you know, social care, for instance, it, it comes back with, you know, we need to develop our commercial capabilities and our insights. We need to develop our relationships, particularly ICSs and ICBs. We need to, to build our, our muscles around collaborative campaigning. We need to get more visible ambassadors, particularly around the sort of people we serve. So all of these things tend to come out, but because, you know, there might be things that might have been on your vague to-do list anyway, but as your sort of trustees and your board work through these really sort of visceral scenario situations, what they get is a real appreciation of how fundamentally important these four or five core things are going to be going forward. So, so scenarios as a way to just try and strip back a lot of that uncertainty and create some real clarity on what are the most important things that you're going to need in any eventuality, it can be really powerful. And Emily, you will have lived some of those questions that I know Martin is describing at Rise International. What are the sort of significant challenges that your charity has seen over the last two or three years? You know, there's that children's series called A Series of Unfortunate Events. Um, and I do feel like the last few years have been like living those those novels. Um, and I think we've always done scenario planning. And I think your heart really sinks when your worst case scenario is like better than reality. <laughs> and you're like, oh, OK, <laughs> we didn't quite imagine every possibility. And I think and a really good example of that was the UK aid cuts. So I think we had a worst case scenario for that year. And one of our assumptions was that even if DFID shut, it wouldn't happen abruptly. Like we didn't think that was possible um, and we obviously proved very wrong and there's been other challenges as well so we obviously we had the pandemic we work in the UK and East Africa so in East Africa they've had the economic kind of crisis across both contexts they've also had Ebola in the last few months it's been challenging um, but I think that it does come back to this idea of like planning for every eventuality and getting the team thinking in that way and actually you know it's about how we continue to deliver our purpose in whatever comes. Um, and I think particularly for purpose-driven organizations, that's really important. Like you, we don't exist for the easy times, like we exist for the hard times. And so coming back to that purpose and, and getting the team thinking, it's not about it all being kind of kittens and roses. It's about delivering when it is tough and seeing that as part of your mission. And I think Martin's right. The way to do that is to have already thought about every eventuality 
um, and in the case of the apocalypse, kind of widening that scope <laughs> so that you're thinking of even more eventualities. <laughs> and in, um, in dealing with your team, how do they cope with this kind of shift in strategy, maybe away from the kittens towards the apocalypse? I think that's a, a really good question. I think it's about taking smaller steps. So I think it's easy when you're purpose driven to think about the big dream, the big vision and to see kind of moves away from that as like a big failure. And I know we are seeing that particularly in girls' rights work. You know, the number of girls in education has now dropped for the first time in a decade. Like it's hard to hear that as people that have spent a decade working to get those girls in school and not feel, you know, a crushing sense of disappointment. But I think it's about simultaneously focusing on the big goal, but on the little steps. And this is where we've kind of really shifted towards a lot more practically, a much more agile approach to like, um, how we run things. And, and it's really thinking, okay, we know the big goal, but actually what's the next step? What can we do now in this context towards our purpose and trying to focus on those those next steps and really kind of celebrate those small steps. And I think also, you know, we are purpose-driven, so let's celebrate that. And so actually really trying to draw inspiration from tough battles that have happened in the past. So as a team, you know, we're not above sending around a poem from a a successful women's rights campaigner a hundred years ago about her frustrations and and so I think trying to draw on that sense of actually you know sometimes the fight is hard but that's okay and actually we're fighting for things we might not see in our lifetime but we we're kind of following on from a, a chain of people that have had similar experiences so trying to draw on on that wealth of previous experience to kind of keep people I suppose motivated yeah, those are some really kind of key things, I think, in terms of on, on our journey. I think the final thing would actually be recognizing the importance of relationships. So I think charities, we often think a lot about our assets, you know, in terms of our what do we own? You know, how much money do we have? But actually recognizing that the relationships the organization has built are actually in a time of crisis, your biggest asset and really recognizing that and using that. Um, and so you might not have very much money in the bank. And there's been times when, to be totally frank, we haven't. But actually, we've got this massive community that really believe in what we're doing. And actually, if we can use that asset and learn how to kind of grow and celebrate that asset, that's what enables us to kind of be agile and respond and to keep kind of moving forward through the kind of different challenges. And an awful lot of charities are now starting to move to this more thoughtful approach to the difference between strategy and planning and you kind of have to recognize that we've inherited this this idea of strategic planning which is in itself it's a kind of bit of a crazy phrase because strategy tends to start from somewhere distant and work backwards to what needs to happen and planning tends to start with what you've got now and and it comes from so, you know, 1950s, 1960s, all the kind of, you know, Michael Porter and Peter Drucker and those, you know, they're very smart people who developed a lot of these models, but, but they lived in a different world. They lived in a world of big multinational corporations working in pretty static markets, competing with each other for market share. And they developed a lot of the models that we were taught, you know, when we were doing sort of MBAs or whatever it was, this is how you do strategy. And it's not. The idea that you can create a five-year plan that you can do all of your thinking now based on what happened in the last three or four years and then just follow that plan for the next. It's just, it's ludicrous. And particularly when you consider that these are kind of competitive commercial organizations and we're mission-driven organizations. It's just as likely that our success is going to be born out of collaboration than it is from competition. 
You know, we're not driven by market share, we're driven by mission. And we're operating in an environment that's in constant flux. So the idea of using those models to apply into, into our context is, is crazy. And if you take those kind of two things, one is volatility and one is the, the sort of the mission driven you start to see strategy in a, in a very, very different way. And that does bring out a whole lot of different views on relationships, partnerships, et cetera. So if I just give you an example, so strategy, that's your North Star, as Emily was sort of saying, that's where you want to get to. But it helps if you ask the question of yourselves, so what is that North Star? What is the world that we want to create? And what is the change that needs to happen in order for that world to manifest itself, whether that's, you know, theory of change or whatever it is. But then asking yourself the question, really from a blank sheet of paper, what is the role that we should play for our organization to play? Because it may well not be doing the stuff that you've been doing for the last five or 10 years. It might be quite different depending on the context and the context will change and therefore your role might need to change. And from there, sort of then asking the question, so what do we need to become in order to play that role rather than how do we sustain the stuff that we've always done? It takes you to a very different place in strategy and then divorcing that from the, the plans which which need to be kind of rolling plans based on rolling budgets, based on a, a sense that, you know, we know that this stuff will have to change. We know that we'll have to adapt. So why don't we build a process within the organization? So rather than these big sort of monolithic plans that we get signed off once a year, and then we try and justify why we're having to deviate from all the time, just build that on, into the process so that we have rolling plans. So so you, you come to a, a very different way of understanding strategy and planning. And within that strategy process, as you start into to ask, you know, what is our role within bringing about this social change or this strategic outcome at a population level or whatever it is, you find that the partnerships and collaborations and working with the, the relationships become fundamental to your ability to do that. It's not about, it rarely is, the outcome from that kind of strategic process. It's not about working in a box and competing with the world so that you can grow your share of care homes or whatever it is. It's about how do you change the nature of end of life care, which means working with a whole load of other people. So relationships, whichever way you look at it, come out of a, a much more enlightened sort of strategy process as being absolutely core to what you do. Thank you. And Emily, you, you mentioned before sort of being agile and being nimble in order to respond to shocks and unanticipated changes and things. What are your tips for other organizations looking to increase their nimbleness for better results? So I think it's really kind of taking what Martin said and turning it into practical action. So I think having multiple scenarios, getting your board used to thinking about the year as a bit of a journey and actually we're going to be moving between different scenarios. So with our board for the last couple of years, we've kind of laid out almost like three journeys and we've kind of you know, been like, we're hoping that we're going to move from journey one into journey two, if it's a good year, if it's an amazing year, we might even make it into journey three. But actually, if it's journey one, that's not bad, you know, so trying to get everybody thinking about the organization and not thinking of planning as static, but thinking of it as a much more fluid process where we're moving between possibilities and knowing what is required to unlock new possibilities. So what needs to happen to move from journey one to journey two, um, and then helping the board to kind of focus on those things that's really helpful. And then I think in terms of the day to day, I think we have shifted to being much more agile. So thinking about things as almost like I think the, the technical term is sprints. Our head of ops is always telling us we're in a sprint, but trying to focus on, OK, what's the short term? We know we've got the big plan, but actually what's the short term goal for the next kind of month or even the next week? And like, what are the things we need to do now? And I think there's something really satisfying in an environment where you have very little control, having a task list 
with a short time frame where you can all sit down together and be like tick, 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 tick. And I just think it creates that sense of control in an environment that is very out of control. And, it, and I think people find it very motivating. And then at the end of that, it also builds in this sense of it's not a fixed plan. At the end of this, we're going to review again and we're going to set the next bit and so it also gives you that chance to be more responsive because you might do that sprint and then actually someone will say, well, this didn't quite get how we, we thought it would or there was this challenge. So when you lay out the detail of the next piece and, that you know, we are talking like weeks or, or you know, short periods of time, actually there's a chance to immediately respond and, and build that in. Whereas if you're kind of working to a detailed work plan that runs over six months, it's six months before you have a real chance to make changes. So I think having that kind of structure where, you're building in this regular cyclical process of changing things and that being something that is accepted and actually encouraged in the team and in the in the board. Um, so I, I think that's really important. And I think the other final thing would be trying to avoid group think. Um, so I think in a crisis, it's easy to kind of hunker down and become almost a bit insular and just be like, focus on the goal, focus on the goal, keep going. It doesn't matter how tired we are. It doesn't matter how much it's not working. Let's just keep going because it used to work. And I think trying to have an environment where there can be disagreement, because actually if things aren't working, you want that to be raised really quickly so that you can respond and adapt. So trying to create an environment where there is a very positive attitude towards com- like good, co- you know, positive conflict. We're not all going to swear at each other, but, you know, <laughs> having <laughs> creating a space where people can feel comfortable with disagreement and I think where you can sit with that disagreement, and I, and I think our chair is very good at that. So actually, you know, creating a space where everyone doesn't have to agree, you can sit with disagreement for a little bit and see what happens. And um, because I think that helps you to be agile and to be focused on adapting and changing. Whereas if you have a context or a culture where to deviate from the dominant message or norm is considered a problem, you could easily be a train wreck and you're not going to know you're kind of careening towards the cliff until you've gone over the edge. Cause like everybody, everybody on there, apart from the driver maybe knows and they're all saying, Oh, it doesn't look like it's going well. It's not going to work. It's not going to work, but they don't want to say it to the driver. And then the only way the driver finds out is when it's like plunging over the edge. It's quite a vivid analogy, but I think trying to make sure that we're not like that train and actually that the passengers and everybody can be like, hang on, guys, like this isn't working. <laughs> Let's do something quickly. Um, so, yeah, I think those would be my top tips. I'm thinking of those sort of building block changes. One of the big ones would have been, so as you, you've already mentioned, the demise of the Department for International Development, the main bit of government that funded international development work. And I know from talking to you previously, Emily, that RIs International certainly wasn't totally sort of able to absorb that. How quickly were you able to start diversifying your income and all those sort of short-term things you need to do to keep the train on the tracks? Well, and I think this is where the relationships come in. Um, and you'll know, remember when we spoke, yeah, we weren't best pleased with that particular policy decision. We reached out very rapidly to all our networks. We actually plugged the immediate gap. I think it was in about a four-week period. Um, and then we started to look at diversifying. And that was all, again, through relationships. So looking at our network and starting to build on the relationships that were already there. And actually, in a way, it's made us stronger because we now have a much more diverse portfolio. So our East African partner, about half of their income is no longer through IRAs International. It's from other independent sources. Our income is split kind of 50-50 UK, East Africa. And that, again, it's from a much more diverse range of funders and I think really importantly much more is some is coming from the UK um, but let's be honest the UK is not the most stable place 
right now. And so we've also increased income from other sources. So we've got funding from Australia. We've got funding from European foundations. We've got a bit more corporate partnership in there, particularly with socially minded businesses that can kind of really get on board with our kind of purpose. But they've all come. They were all contacts that we already had in our network, all the majority. It's all come through expanding that network, branching out that network and finding those possibilities in relationships that perhaps before we would have overlooked because we were perhaps a bit complacent, a bit comfortable. Um, So in a way, it's a really positive shift because we have a more diverse income base and it's much more embedded in our actual network. I think we're actually stronger and more resilient I think all organizations, we have the seeds of diversifying, of of surviving these hits, of growing. The seeds are already there in our communities and our networks. It's about kind of finding them and unearthing them and helping them to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And Martin, do you have any principles that you would advise organizations to consider when they're devising their work plans and their budgets in the face of uncertainty, whether it's funding uncertainty or (laughs) any other form the fundamental principle, I think, is, is you be absolutely fixed on your vision, but absolutely flexible and open-minded about how you're going to get there, because mm-hmm. that's what's going to get you through. I think income resilience is a really important piece, just as Emily's spoken about, where else might the money come from, and how can you continually grow that? Um, I think the idea that <laughs> it was quite a negative perception at some point that Charities shouldn't be trying to grow all the time, etc. But you know, when you're facing uncertainty, you've got to have a growth mindset because other stuff will disappear. It will. So if you understand what your best role is, and you know what is it you're uniquely positioned to do, and you you start to market and sell that, you should be able to continue to kind of grow that breadth of income. And that's the sort of stuff on the outside in terms of organisational resilience. But on the inside, I think the key principle is is to look after your people and to look after yourself. It's a bit of a sort of you know throwaway line that your people are your most precious asset but they are and you have to pay them properly i'm seeing that stuff you know even creeping into the sector now even if that means having fewer people on bigger salaries you need to look after them and you can't protect them from from the stress i think emily just gave a good example of organizational maturity where your people are not stupid you know you've not employed them so that you can kind of you know be their savior and protect them from all this bad news chief execs don't need to sort of sit with all that stress on their shoulders you've got a good team who can sit in that sort of you know zone of discomfort that you know comfortable with ambiguity to share this stuff with them but at the same time you then need to reward them so that their home life isn't just piling loads more stress onto their shoulders as well particularly in you know in, in some of the difficult areas where charities work where we're seeing beneficiaries with cost of living crisis beneficiaries going through through the absolute ringer at the moment and our people are having to work with them and see that stuff you know it has a psychological effect on our people we need to look after them so that's number one and then you need to look after yourself because the more stressed and tired we get we know this you know intellectually we know this the more stressed and more tired we get the worst decisions that we make and yet we kind of overwork ourselves because we put that sort of charity sort of you know hessian shirt on and you know we need to sort of push ourselves and we can't give ourselves a break so you need to and then finally i think look outside the organization the final principle is is you know look around partnerships whether it's mergers sort of synergies or collaborations but your peers there are loads of other people i've worked in lots of different sectors most of my time i've spent in the private sector i'm amazed at how collaborative the non-profit sector is how chief executives who ostensibly are almost in competition in terms of their organizations will help each other out and share stuff one of the 
probably the thing that I'm most proudest of during the, the pandemic was just setting up these regular calls where chief execs from different organizations in my community could just drop in and be honest and open and share, just unload, share the burden with each other. It's that building that, that network, that support structure outside of you and outside of the organization, I think is fundamental. So if you can, if you can focus on income resilience, but also focus on people, the organizational resilience, and focus on your own personal resilience. Those are really good things. So ultimately, the, the way that I see it now, that you know, the, increasingly the role of the chief exec is to create an environment which attracts really good people, really interested people or, or funders or whatever it is, into your orbit and allows them the space to, to sort of be creative and thrive. That's the role of the leader is to create that environment more than anything else. And you can't do that if you're tired and you can't do that if you're underpaying people and you can't do that if you're not getting generating income. So those are the kind of principles that I would steer people towards. And as a final question for you both, I don't mind which order you take it in, but if, if you had just one tip as we go into 2023, which may be even more uncertain than 2022 is turning out to be, if you had one tip for those charity bosses, for your peers, what would it be? Plan to change. It's like death and taxes, you know, the need to change your plans is one of the few things that you can predict with absolute certainty. Yeah, and I think for me, change is always opportunity and it's seeing the opportunity in the need to change and, and unlocking that opportunity. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, Emily Wilson and Martin Drake, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And now for the good news bulletin, featuring everything from the positive to the downright strange stories we've spotted in the sector. Lucinda, what have you got for us today? Today, we bring you Festive Joy by looking at a couple of the charity Christmas single releases for this year. Cue Martin Lewis, first of all, the money-saving expert who has confirmed that he will be joining the YouTube star Lad Baby for a cover of Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas, along with some other music industry icons to raise money for the Trussell Trust and the Band-Aid Foundation. Martin Lewis admitted that he thought he'd been confused with somebody else when he was approached to take part in the single. He said, the nearest I've ever got to thinking about a Christmas number one is going to the loo on Boxing Day after too much orange juice the day before. It seems it was the link to the Trussell Trust which swayed him to do it with gusto at a time when advice charities and food banks are swamped. And aside from that, the Royal Navy Band Little Red Ambulance has joined forces with the Culdrow's Military Wives Choir for their single Sailing Home for Christmas. It's an upbeat number written by the band members while they were serving on board HMS Queen Elizabeth last year and describes the anticipation felt by service people who are sailing home after months away from their families. All money raised for that one will be donated to the Royal Navy and Royal Marines charity and the Military Wives Choir. And Basil Brush is starring in Boom Boom It's Christmas Again, featuring other children's TV characters, including Mr Blobby, with proceeds going to Save the Children and Shooting Star Children's Hospitals. I have to confess that I found that one a little bit grating, um, but much more to my taste was the single from the Music Man Project with the Royal Marines Band in tribute to Sir David Amos, the Essex MP who was stabbed to death last year. Sir David was the president of the Music Man Project, which provides music education for people with learning disabilities and all proceeds from the single will go to this fantastic cause. What a run through. You could have had a job as a sort of a Radio 1 DJ back oh, in the day. Thank you very much. 
Uh, it's the nicest thing I've ever said, I think. But <laughs> how much money would I have to give to charity to make you listen to that Basil Brush one over and over and over again on a loop? I mean, I'm conflicted because obviously Save the Children and the Shooting Star Children's Hospices are fantastic causes. Yeah. And listening to a painful song a few times, um, yeah, I think we can all do that. But maybe on mute. All right, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with a festive roundup of the year with what we hope will be a full house from the full Third Sector editorial team. So if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about it. But for now, I'm Russell Hargrave. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Thank you to our guests, Emily Wilson and Martin Drake, and our producer, Nav Pal. Join us again next week. <laughs>